everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 95 of Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where, with my good friend and colleague Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds to take a look at a compliance or compliance-related topic each week. Today, we look at the most unusual whistleblower awards issued by the Securities and Exchange Commission last week. They certainly broke the mold for factual background on the awards and the reasons for waiver of certain requirements. I think you'll find this a fascinating discussion. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and we are back for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, where with my good friend and colleague, Matt Kelly, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds to talk about a compliance topic. And boy, we have one today to geek out on. Uh, it is the recent uh, SEC whistleblower award of $54 million to two persons announced last week. And it is uh, probably the most unusual SEC whistleblower award to date, Matt. So with that, with incredibly long introduction, uh, welcome. Hello, Tom. Always good to be here, even for this rather frustrating award news that we got late last week. Yeah. So uh, you want to try to paint the facts for us as best uh, as you understand them? I, I will. And, you know, I, let me just start by saying I, I promised compliance officers listening. There are some interesting lessons here, but one big lesson is just the confusing state of disclosure about SEC whistleblower awards. And I understand that due to confidentiality requirements under the Dodd-Frank law, the SEC can't say much, but read through this uh, determination order from them and it will just drive you up a wall because you've got some interesting details and then half of a blank page that's redacted and then the SEC responds with more redaction and then there are details and footnotes and it just it would be nice for the compliance community if we had a bit more clarity from the SEC as much as possible, or maybe even revisit the statute, which is a pipe dream, um, just to see if we could get more clarity for the compliance community, because so much we really just are guessing. Here's what we have. So we have a $54 million reward split between two people unevenly. We have claimant number one. Who are they? I don't know. They're just the claimant number one. That's all we know. Claimant number one received $39 million. That is the second largest whistleblower award the SEC has ever given out. Um, And that said, the SEC actually denied claimant one even more money because he had already been looking for another award from a different agency related to the same misconduct. And we're going to get to that again because that's a theme is that the other person, claimant number two, uh, also had been saying that I think I should get even more for the information I provided. But uh, because both people, I'll just assume that they're men, but both men um, had been working with other agencies, the SEC came back and said, no, 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 you, you don't get to get more than one bite at the apple. And I don't recall that we've seen any award determination with that level of clarity or that example where the SEC has come out and said, we trimmed these awards because they were already working with federal agents, other agencies as well, and that might get other awards and we're not going to be handing out awards like they're candy. Um, but claimant one received 39 million, claimant two received 15 million. As always, we do not know much about the specifics of what case is this related to, 
But if you do the math, the award must be between 10 to 30 percent of whatever final monetary penalties the SEC got because of this information. So that is somewhere in the past, the SEC had an enforcement action of 180 million to 540 million in penalties. It's a big range. Somewhere in there was an enforcement action that came because of these tips. And these tips were then split out in, I think, roughly a three and a half to one ratio between claimant one and two. Um, but that's the nutshell of it. And we can get into the, the details of it as much as we can after that. So, man, I guess on my first pass on this and uh, my I, I wasn't nearly as frustrated as you are, but my first thought was, wow, the SEC really will work to uh, get around whatever rule they have in place uh, under a appropriate set of circumstances. Now, I understand we don't know what those appropriate sets of circumstances are. We don't have any guidance as to why they thought it was important to make this award. But it showed to me an inherent flexibility that uh, I didn't think was this Securities and Exchange Commission, or at least this SEC under uh, this commissioner had. Yeah. And so that specific issue, to my mind, came most clearly with Claimant 2. We're going to get back to Claimant 1 later on. But Claimant 2 apparently was called by a different agency to in, that was called to be interviewed for some issue related to this misconduct uh, at some point in the past. And that put this idea into Claimant 2's head that, oh, I have a lot of valuable information here. I should go to the SEC about this too. And so claimant number two did go to the SEC with his whistleblower tip. Would he ever have done that if the first agency, we don't know which one, if that first agency hadn't called him in for an interview? We don't know, but the fact remains that he did get called in for an interview by some other agency first, and then he went to the SEC, and that would normally mean under Rule 21-F4A of the whistleblower program that the person is no longer qualifies as being a voluntary uh, submission of information to the SEC because somebody else, some other agency already went deliberately looking for it and called them in. Um, so let me, let me stop you there because sure. this was my interpretation, and, and I think you have a different one based on your blog post. Uh, but my interpretation was that in that interview, claimant number two ascertained facts that he was not aware of from the questioning. And from that, he was able to put together with what he had information that he then took to the SEC so that it wasn't the fact that he was interviewed, which led him to think he had a potential claim, but it was actually the interview questions from the sister agency or other agency, rather, uh, that gave him enough information to package it for the SEC. That, you know, that may be true. And this gets back to my earlier point that these determination orders are awfully convoluted. Um, if that is the case, it still holds that the interview, the first interview, put the ball in motion and put the idea in his head that I should go look for this information. And he's found it. And then he went to the SEC and uh, he claimant too did try to say that that rule did not apply to him because the other agency apparently didn't direct its request specifically to him. And then he cited several supporting factors, which this is what drives me nuts were redacted 
from the <laughs> determination order. So he came up with all these reasons why the rule shouldn't apply to him. And then the SEC said, no, the rule does apply to you. Um, the rule specifically says a person must offer his or her tip before the commission sends a request and inquiry or demand to him looking for information. And is it the commission specifically? Is it all agencies? You know, you can take this up. But he tried to say that the rule did not apply to him. The SEC said, actually, the rule did. But why did it apply to him? We don't know because that those the SEC's response was redacted. And then what was there, and this is what drives me nuts, is the SEC said, at the same time, we recognize that the specific concerns animating Rule 21F are not present under the unique circumstances of this case and that relief from the strict operation of this rule is appropriate. So basically, he came up with an argument. They shot it down, said, no, you are responsible. But given the special circumstances, we're going to waive it anyways and give you this money. I don't know like, what lesson that tells compliance officers that is useful beyond what you said, Tom, that um, the SEC shows a, a very breezy willingness to deviate from its rules if it thinks that is in the best interests of its position or its case that day. But we have no actual fact pattern to try and figure out how we might fit that into our own compliance regimes. And that that's what really exasperates me. So if we could maybe go into the veiled land of the future uh, using this case as a guide, when the proposed rules came out that you've comment upon, commented upon and asked indeed for others to comment upon, yeah. um, it seemed to me one of the things they were trying to do was put a top-end cap on uh, uh, or cap on the very top awards and reduce those down. Uh, and here we have a case that seems to be creating the availability of, of a award when the rule would specify that the claimant didn't meet the requirements. And so I'm wondering, is there a cognitive dissonance in, in that, in those positions, or am I just reading way too much into two very disparate things? Well, I, I think that there is some dissonance here because this point about the cap on large awards and the cap that is proposed is $30 million. Well, that would apply to claimant number one. Now let's get back to him and what he had done. Um, claimant number one apparently was unreasonably delayed in reporting his tip to the SEC. Uh, but the information subsequently was so valuable that the SEC decided it was going to be worth $39 million anyways. Um, he also apparently won points with the agency because he provided ongoing assistance to the enforcement division, uh, including traveling on his own dime uh, to meet with the staff on multiple occasions. Um, so look, people, frequent flyer miles, that's why you save them up so you can do this kind of a thing. Um, but it makes me wonder if, you know, was he somehow being supported by plaintiff lawyers who were looking for a large award in the future? That's total speculation on my part. But there are groups out there that invest in whistleblowers and cover their expenses now on the assumption that they will get a larger payoff later on. That is what happened here. Um, in theory, he was unduly slow in getting his information to the SEC, but they said, you know what? Stuff you're giving us so good, we're going to give you $39 million anyways. So again, we have these um, a, a willingness to make exception requests uh, pretty frequently. And that, I think, 
is difficult to square with um, the proposed cap where the SEC chairman, Jay Clayton, uh, was basically saying that large awards don't serve the interests of the SEC whistleblower program. Well, first, I, you don't really say why they don't. I don't see why they don't hurt it or harm it. But even if that is all true, you still have an agency here that just chucked all those principles out the window and said, in this particular case, we're going to give you $39 million anyways. Um, and then they also had claimant number two, who basically they said, you know, normally you wouldn't get this award because it's not voluntary, but we're going to give it to you anyways. There is a dissonance here. You're right. Well, this just uh, was fascinating on so many different levels. Is there really anything that we could call out for the compliance practitioner who either may become a whistleblower or conversely would try to take some of the information from a whistleblower award and incorporate it into his compliance program? Or is this is just too unique? I, it's not that it's – I don't know what the right adjective is. I mean there's a certain randomness to this here. I, I won't challenge that I – we don't know what the facts are of this case, so I'll trust the SEC that given the facts that they know, they decided this was in the best interests of the whistleblowers. And okay, fine, but for those of us left on the outside, we really – the only lesson we have to take away is that the SEC is – very flexible in its interpretations of its rules here. And I'm sure that can be a bit frustrating to people who are trying to kind of glean out some lessons that could apply broadly. I don't know that we have them here. Um, we might, but we'll never know because the facts are not present. Um, the only other issue I would want to raise is by coincidence, the day before this award came out, I had done a, another post about the state of the whistleblower reforms. They're out for public comment until September 18. And so I looked at what are the comments that were coming along so far. And probably to no surprise, there's a lot of governance activists out there who are not happy with the proposed cap. But what really stuck out to me was one point raised by a whistleblower law firm of Cone, Cone, and Colapinto uh, that they said, that this could be a serious issue for those people who had already submitted whistleblower tips in the past, assuming that there wasn't going to be any big change like a cap on potential payouts. And now their tips are in the system. They're being reviewed, but the possible benefit of it has changed. And uh, Cone, Cone, and Colapinto said that that could be a violation of their due process rights, which screams out to me as a big red flag. Somebody somewhere is going to haul these reforms in a court should they actually pass. And we did just get a new SEC commissioner impaneled last week, Eloyd, or Elad Roisman, I believe his name is. But uh, he is a Republican commissioner. Republicans are back in the majority now. If they really want to do these reforms, now they can. And um, suddenly I'm wondering, is a legal challenge that much more plausible? Because you hear language like that, and the Republican leadership can push this through if they want, um, which is a shame because the cap may or may not be a good idea. But I think many of the other reforms are good ideas, and I'm not sure what might get challenged where, but this could still be a very sticky situation for a while. Well, Matt, it's a, it's a fascinating case. Um, I'm not quite sure what to make of this, if this is a one-off or 
if this is something that uh, people need to study so that uh, they might try to follow it. But uh, it's certainly very interesting. It is indeed. So I've been visiting with Matt Kelly, and we've been talking about the SEC Whistleblower Award last week, the $54 million to two claimants. Uh, Matt blogged about it in a uh, uh, appropriately entitled blog post, $54 million SEC Whistleblower Award. So, Matt, as always, uh, thanks. And I look forward to uh, what we come up with next week. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. I hope you'll join us again next week where Matt Kelly and I take a deep dive, literally going into the weeds for a compliance or compliance-related topic. Compliance Into the Weeds is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.